0: Welcome to another episode of Lawyer's Zen Podcast. I'm Patrick Barnes, I'm your host, and I'm a a practicing attorney in Tampa, Florida. I'm also the owner of Legal Flow Consulting. Feel free to reach uh, me at my email, patrick, at legalflowconsulting.com. Or go to my website, www.legalflowconsulting.com. I'd love to hear some feedback on on what everyone thinks of the podcast, what are some topics we could cover moving forward, is there any topic you want us to delve further into that we've already talked about. Today we are talking about the importance of peer-to-peer support in the legal profession, and we'll be talking with a gentleman named Juan Basagalupe, who is a, a former attorney um, that now runs a nonprofit called Legal Mind Society. And that's exactly what they do. They set up one-on-one group um, sessions of peer-to-peer support. because, And we get into kind of the difference between therapy and peer-to-peer support. And how talking with your own peer that kind of understands the stressors of the profession. Or maybe you're not ready to, to delve into formal therapy. Is just such a good tool for attorneys. In addition to talking with Juan, we have a special guest host. My dad, who you may uh, remember from the first episode, is uh, in town. Uh, We'll be doing a speaking engagement tomorrow, and so I said, hey, come be a guest host on the podcast. So you know, I think he'll be pretty integral with the podcast moving forward, just because a lot of the compassion fatigue stuff we do is together. So exciting to have him, excited to talk to Juan, and excited for you to hear it. So, without further ado, enjoy talking or hearing about peer-to-peer support with Juan Basigalupe of Legal Mind Society. Enjoy. Okay, we are sitting here with Juan Basigalupe. Uh I'm very happy to have him on today. He is uh, an attorney that is also uh, in the mental health field and also has created uh, legal mind society which we're going to get into and talk about more uh, where he's a recovery support specialist juan it's great to have you on uh, the lawyers zen podcast
1: good to be here thank you for having me so
0: I think it's uh, it's fitting that we're having this conversation. Oh, and I forgot to mention, I have a co I have <laughs> I have a co-host today, uh, Dr. Michael Barnes, who you can find on the first episode. That's right. Um, and also my kind of partner in uh, in crime, I guess, for lack of a better word, with the whole compassion fatigue and secondary yeah. trauma and uh, trauma-informed lawyering. So he's joining us today. Um, I think it's fitting to have you on today, Juan, given that it is like well-being in law week um which yeah. i've seen you post about on on linkedin and um you know so it's it's fitting to have you on here uh given what you're doing with the legal mind society uh why don't you before we get into that tell me t- let's talk about your background and kind of you were a lawyer and kind of tell me how how you got to be where you are sitting in front of us today
1: yeah yeah of course um so yeah i got my uh jd from lewis and clark law school out in portland oregon um when I, I chose Lewis and Clark because I really wanted to be uh, an environmental attorney and they have a um, excellent environmental program. Um, did that passed the bar in Massachusetts, which is where I'm from originally. Um, had a little bit of trouble finding a job in Massachusetts, so I thought Chicago was a little bit of a bigger um, job market. I had um, the woman who's now my wife, also lives, <laughs> lives in the Chicago area, so I decided to take a chance, both personally and professionally. And so far it's worked out for me. Um, so for a few years, I was working with a company in, uh, Chicago doing environmental law stuff and, uh, it was just ratcheting up my anxiety levels, um, you know, it got to the point where I was, uh, requesting a comment for any of your listeners who aren't aware the ADA requires reasonable accommodations, um, as with. So many things in the law, what is reasonable is often open to interpretation. Um, And my employer interpreted it as narrowly as they could. So that didn't help my anxiety at all. Mm -hmm. Um, The contract I was working under ended right before the pandemic, so it was a good time to kind of reassess. Um, Started getting involved with a local affiliate office of uh, NAMI, the National Alliance of Mental Illness, doing work as a recovery support specialist, um, which is peer-to-peer work. really enjoyed it, really satisfying work, um, and realized that it might the peer-to-peer model might work really well for attorneys who maybe don't take time out of their day to talk to a therapist, um, or if they do talk to a therapist, maybe they feel that the therapist doesn't understand some of the unique stressors of the legal profession. Um, so that led me to create the Legal Mind Society um, with the goal of educating lawyers about mental health issues and also providing peer support to lawyers who are experiencing mental health issues that can come from compassion fatigue, um, come from you know their own issues. A lot of some attorneys um, go into law school already struggling with mental health issues or addiction. Um, you know, So there's a lot of different roads that might lead to that point. Um, and we're here to help support them as they're trying to get back on track.
0: That's awesome um and and obviously if there's you know if we don't have to get too personal but if i because i also struggle with anxiety my whole life um and and i agree that the legal profession ratcheted that up it's just it's just what happens when you're in a a stress-inducing environment and we've talked about that a lot um let me ask you ask you i mean did you have anxiety prior to going to law school
1: yeah i mean i don't think i realized what it is you know i think that's one of the really insidious things about mental health conditions is you don't understand that it's not normal to be having a hard time getting out of bed because of depression or you know to be social interactions um because of your anxiety you just feel like that's how you are um you know so i think my symptoms probably started in high school um you know looking back on it knowing what i know now uh, but i didn't actually start seeing a therapist until second year of law school.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so I definitely had issues that I was ignoring, um, you know, all the way through one L year, all the way through until second year when I finally started seeing someone. So d- how did you feel like
0: law school, did you feel like the magnification of that anxiety took off during law school?
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, a classmate of mine actually put it the best way ever she said law school is a, a terrible psychological experiment where you take <laughs> a bunch of high A personalities and lock them in a room together for three years and literally grade them against one another. That's so true.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so, and, and yeah,
1: magnify the anxiety a little bit.
0: Yeah, and the Socratic method and never any other way they can torture you.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I mean, you know, I remember my property law professor sometimes would just drill down on a case that you're briefing. Until you finally got to the point that you didn't know an answer, right? You know, and that really shakes your your confidence when you're already dealing with anxiety and all the stressors of you know 200 pages of pages of case law reading every night and all that.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I I um I've talked about it on the podcast. I'm pretty open about it. But I I got hit by a car when I was five. Mm-hmm. Um, had a near death experience. Broke femur. Lacerated liver. Kidney. Um, and so I think I've had anxiety probably since I was a kid And but like you said, you don't know what it is. It's just the way it's just it's just how you are, right and until you kind of find a thing for it. Um, but I do feel like mine kind of also magnified in law school based on everything you're saying, which is just it's it's a tough environment right And it's meant to find out who can rise to the top and who can't cut it. so um, so yeah, I think we share similar experiences in that
1: um yeah.
0: so so tell me about uh, what well, so like you said that and i was interested in, i wanted to dig a little deeper on you said your employer kind of did the bare minimum so i'm going to assume that you brought to their attention that you were struggling with this
1: yep yep yeah so i brought to uh to their attention the anxiety and depression um along with documentation from my therapist Recommending that, um, so the accommodation I was seeking was to work from home two days out of the week. Mm -hmm. Um, and the client that we were working for at the time was fine with it. It's something I had already done, um, on occasion because of the you know winters that we get here in Chicago, there were inclement weather days where I couldn't make it into the office. So, something I had done, it's something the client was with but doing it as like a set thing the um you know i think my employer was worried about the precedent it would set uh, mm-hmm. The other people want to work from home um you know and so they really kind of dug their heels in um because the police law in, uh around it in this circuit at least is uh kind of leans toward the fact that that's not an option or that's not a reasonable accommodation under the law so basically said we don't have to do it the court says we don't have to do it and we'll stand by that
0: yeah and we talk so much about you know that the this this whole compassion fatigue secondary trauma burnout comes from the top down right and that you have to have ownership management buy-in for it to work within a firm um, and so it's interesting to hear a real life a real life example of someone who came to their superior and said, hey, look, I'm struggling, here's how I think I can accommodate them and them say, we don't have to do that and we're not gonna do it. It's interesting to to hear it. Um, and obviously that didn't work out because you're you're doing this now, right? So you-, you...
1: Yeah, so it was kind of a silver, I, I basically had to decide whether I wanted to drop it and go away with nothing or file a formal complaint with the Equal Employment uh, Commission mm-hmm. um, and kind of go towards the lawsuit. Um, so in the middle of all of this, the contract that I was um, working under they, wasn't renewed. Um, so I kind of took it as a good time to just, you know, leave and on somewhat good terms, and you know, let yeah, let let me, uh, you know go my separate way. Um, you know, and then you know, obviously none of us knew what was coming with the pandemic, but you know it was a good, kind of a good time for me to reassess where I wanted to go personally, where I wanted to go professionally. Right. Um I had already been, you know, writing some blogs about mental health issues and you know really decided to dig into it more.
0: Yeah, a little did you know the two day at home requests would turn into a pandemic.
1: Yeah, yeah. I was I was kind of laughing when you know, the whole company had to go work from home right after right. I left and they said that that couldn't happen, but yeah, it was you know <clears> little <throat> did they know too, I guess.
2: It's really interesting, you know, so often people think of compassion fatigue as the trauma piece, the secondary trauma piece, but the uh, the other side of that is what we call organizational trauma and the policies and procedures, the decisions that are made, the way leadership manages and supervises cases like this, that is every bit as much of an impact um, to create compassion fatigue as the working with the traumatized clients and all of the other things. So. I think it's a really good example of what we often talk about as organizational stressors. That, um...
1: yeah, absolutely. And you know, a friend of mine, he was um, he worked in human resources for one of the big big law firms in downtown Chicago. Um, they lost a one of their attorneys to suicide. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and from the way he said it, it, sounds like the firm. You know, even when they were presented with this you know, tragedy right in front of them, you know, and I think that that's, you You, you talked a minute ago about top-down, you mm-hmm. know, an organizational problem. And I, I, I really think that that's what it is, is, you know, the senior attorneys, the senior partners in these firms, um, you know, either they had to go through the grinder so they want to turn it around on their junior associates or they just don't know any better. Um, yeah. You know, I think a big part of it of what I'm trying to do with the Legal Mind Society is, not just provide support, but also provide education.
0: Yeah, it's like, and we talked about that too, is like, you know, it, it, you're putting someone who has been through the compassion fatigue gauntlet themselves as an associate, as a junior, whatever level they go to, then you're putting them in the top role. And now you're asking them to to have enough of that bandwidth for empathy and, and compassion to, to turn around and change it. But they don't have it because they went through it that they're going they're as traumatized as any of the rest of us. And so just because you, you get to take a different hat off and you become a partner instead of an associate doesn't really change your brain.
1: No, and in, you know it's interesting that you say that because I was reading something about active listening and and, and trauma informed care and how big of a part that is. Yeah. Of it. And um it was talking about how active listening is really a a part of empathy Mm -hmm. and so many of these senior attorneys unfortunately don't have that you know they don't have the empathy to recognize these complaints or these struggles or listen listen to what's going on right in front of them
0: well and if you think about if you take your biggest three issues of the day or the week or whatever when you get that opportunity to go talk with them and then so does the person in the office next to you and the office next to them and the office next to them. And all of a sudden, the 25 biggest issues of the office have been presented. You only have so much bandwidth. So I, I'm not saying that I guess we're not saying that partners are you know, are the bad guys. They just they need to be as aware of where these stressors from an operational level as well as an organizational level come from in order for them to be OK and for them to have the bandwidth to deal with your, your issues, too. It's a real conundrum
1: yeah yeah and i i think that you're in point it's important to say that you know and we talk about big firms um that tends to be the, the very stressful um situations obviously you know all the way yeah. down practitioners can struggle with it too um you know and i it, you know it's it's something that we talk about the mental health issue in the legal field and how there really needs to be major change you know and that's not just you know how we talk about mental health but also how the the profession operates and how it it handles these situations when they do come up you know and maybe having because you're right it might not be that the partners have the the bandwidth or the the skills to deal with this but so maybe having you know more more um counselors available maybe talking about that more you know some other solution outside of just expecting the pot the partner to manage a massive law firm and also a mental health crisis
0: right that's such a good point.
2: Well, in family therapy, we talk uh, particularly about parents. Is parents get, can't give their kids what they don't have, and that's really what we're kind of asking um, leaders in law firms to do: is to um, if they if they haven't been taught that, how could they pass that on to their junior associates? And it's the self fulfilling prophecy mm-hmm. for the next generation and the next generation.
0: Yeah yeah so 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 tell me about I want to so I, I came across you on Twitter mm-hmm. and I, I read some things that you wrote I thought wow this really aligns with what I what I'm talking about obviously in a little bit of different capacity because you're doing the peer-to-peer review and we're kind of just more generalized let's get this conversation in as many ears as we can mm-hmm. um, and I think you're trying to do that too but it's just a little different um, build. Um, so tell tell me about it. Like can you give me the, the elevator pitch of legal mind society.
1: Yeah. So lawyers, you know, a lot of them don't take the time to take care of themselves, not just when it comes to things like therapy, mm-hmm. but also eating right, getting enough sleep, all that. But one thing they really understand is networking and that kind of peer-to-peer relationship that's already so prevalent in the legal society and kind of building on that and letting people know that it's okay to talk about it and having attorneys who, you know, have got, are managing their, their mental health struggles be those role models that attorneys can turn to and talk to and get support from and say, Hey, you're not alone. We've been here through too. Um, We can help, you know, and that's, that's really the big uh, difference between say peer support um, and Um, traditional therapy where a traditional therapist is going to maintain that clinical distance Mm -hmm. um, and the the peer relationship is all about building connection and um, self-disclosing your own journey with depression or whatever your mental or addiction or whatever your mental health challenge was so that the person in front of you knows that you're not alone and so many times with people I've worked with in a peer setting. That is one of the most powerful things that happens is just seeing that hey somebody else struggled just like I am, you know, and now they seem to be back on track
0: mm-hmm. I wonder how much of that active listening comes into play in that as well in the sense oh, that it- you can just kind of tell your story and to another peer in the same profession that doesn't doesn't look at you like you're like you're crazy and you go okay, that's just affirming enough in itself
1: yeah and, and it's it's such a huge thing to to actually be heard you know not just in the field but everything in our our current society is just pulling us in a hundred different directions and it's hard to feel like you have somebody who is genuinely there genuinely listening to you um and there to support you
0: yeah and it's like we're a self-policing profession so when you feel like you know, you don't know who to turn to, to bring this up. And so the fact that you're giving a platform for people to actually be able to meet and connect peer to peer, I think is so vital when we are a self-policing profession. That's like, well, who's gonna? You know, anybody can anonymously report anybody to the bar.
1: Right. And that's, and that's this, this gray area where, you know, if you come forward or if information comes forward in the process of seeking treatment, a lot of times they won't pursue disciplinary action, but nothing's stopping those same people from taking disciplinary action if it comes to light like in any other, you know, setting. Mm-hmm. You know, and so of course, the lawyers aren't going to trust the bar exam. You know, and and you talk about, um, you know, the legal assistance programs that are in every state. They do great work, but the problems are that a lot of times they're underfunded, mm-hmm. and they're associated with the state bar association. So there's that those optics of them being right in cahoots with the same people who can discipline them for their mental health issue. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, so I was gonna ask you kind of, how do you see that your company or your society fitting in with those with those state-run kind of lawyer assistance programs you see?
1: Yeah, I mean, like I said, the ones that I've seen have been doing some really great work. You know, I've, I've talked a little bit with some of the people who um, are involved with Lawyers Concerned for Lawyers out of Massachusetts um just because that's where i i was barred um Mm -hmm. you know and i think i see myself as outside of that you know i think i see myself as a resource who wants to work alongside um legal assistance programs um maybe it's something that they can refer um individuals out to um and same way too you know i talked about education is you know educating lawyers about all the safeguards that are in place that keep these legal assistance programs completely separate from, you know, the disciplinary offices.
0: Yeah. Um, what What are you seeing as, like, when you're talking with lawyers in this peer-to-peer, and obviously, you know, generalized, I guess, but, like, what are you seeing as the biggest complaints or the biggest issues, the hurdles that, that people are bringing to you?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think... I think that's, that's really... Um, Tough question, obviously, to nail down, because everybody's different. Every, even yeah. if you have the same diagnosis, the same issues, it will present differently. Um, you know, I think some of the big things that I've seen are um, depression, um, you know, and I think not just in the legal field, but, you know, across the board, COVID exacerbated a lot of these issues um, where people are feeling even more disconnected, even more, um alone Mm -hmm. you know and i think that that's if i had to put a a word on it you know that that loneliness that disconnection from Mm -hmm. is really probably the underlying issue that i see you know across all these different diagnoses or issues that is really presenting the challenge
0: yeah i mean i think the depression um might stem to some extent from that disillusionment of Mm -hmm. you know of of not feeling like you're making the difference you thought you might in the profession and um, yeah you're getting caught up you know and you're losing when you lose that that bandwidth to operational stressors things that come about in the profession that kind of take that from you you do start to kind of say i don't know that i'm making the difference that i can and that can definitely lead to depression um yeah so being a, a huge issue the other thing in regards to the loneliness is interesting because i mean i'm I'm, so I'm a civil litigator i do personal injury and the one thing about personal injury with with litigation is everything is still by zoom and i think it doesn't seem like it's going away and so i wonder how much of that human connection that you drive across town to the to the, to the room where everyone's at even if it's an adversarial you know uh, event like a deposition or mediation it's still other people in the room you know like i wonder if that's could be where the loneliness is coming from to some extent
1: be a part of it you know my wife is a teacher my mom is also a teacher and you know when covid first happened and when they were doing the remote learning kids especially aren't right. designed to learn that way you know and i don't think we're designed to learn that way or function that way um you know and there are definitely settings where you know especially with big organizations where zoom can help, you know, cut through cut down distances, but you know, for something like that where you used to be going across town for the deposition and now you're, you know, just sitting on your computer with zoom, I think it makes a big difference.
0: Mm-hmm. What um I, I was, I was looking through your stuff that you've posted and I think you post a lot of great articles. You also write a lot of great articles um, on your blog, but also on, on like LinkedIn. And I was struck in by this, Reuters um article that you posted about Massachusetts doing earlier this year um a study of what like 4400 attorneys the statistics are ridiculous um to give you a couple um let me I got them right here so 77% of the 4450 Massachusetts attorneys reported feeling burnt out 26% reported high rates of anxiety 21 reported depression and seven reported suicidal thoughts, all of which are higher than the US average, just for like non, non-practicing attorneys. I mean, what do, what do you what do you make of those? Oh, and 42% with addiction. The 42% with addiction or, right. or dangerous use of, of substances.
1: Yeah, um, you know, I think it's really, a lot of these problems kind of feed on each other um, where you're starting to feel these feelings of anxiety or isolation or whatever you feel like you can't talk to somebody. So many of us, you know, it's cliched for a reason. So many of us do self-medicate with drugs or alcohol, especially in a profession like the law where so many, you know, networking events, so many conferences, you know, at the end of the conference, the happy hour have, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: you know, so many, you know, firm, firm parties and all, all that. And, yeah, it's, um, you know, it's it's kind of all these factors that really make it easy for people to develop these second, these other, you know, these comorbid problems of, uh, um, you know, addiction or...
0: Everything revolves around alcohol. I mean, if, yeah. some, if you really think about it, and like you said, all the conferences end in happy hours, all of the bar sections have, have happy hours. It's like, and you go all the way back, to, and I thought, you know, that same study said, or maybe it was a different study, said that, that young junior associates are the, are the most susceptible to it. And it's because that's a learned habit in law school, because all the law school uh, formals and, you know, all the different socials are all at bars.
2: Yeah. I think the other piece is, for listeners, Yeah, you know, 45% is four times higher than the national average of addiction. And the you know that that's not just a learned behavior that's self-medicating as well as part of that process so that's a pretty significant number to try to grasp
0: mm-hmm.
1: yeah and you know I think we talked you know and it's great that you're doing this podcast we need more people just to be having these conversations because you know I think right now it's, Some attorneys almost wear this as a badge of honor, this, you know, whole lifestyle of work, you know, billing 80 hours a week and sleeping four hours a night and, you know, going to the bar every, you know, finishing the day at at your home bar every night, you know, all these (laughs) different things.
0: Yeah. Work hard, play hard. I think that's an old guard, too, um, that's changing with, with generationally.
1: Yeah, it is. You know, like, I, I do I do feel like younger attorneys are more open to this. And um, I do think some law schools have started to talk.
0: Yeah. I mean, there's like that old school attorney that's like, if you're not doing 80 hours in the office a week, you're doing it wrong, you know, or you're lazy. And I think our generation is saying, I, yeah, I'm going to go out and embrace life. I can't do that.
1: Right. Um, and, you know, the, you know, somebody I went to law school with, he took the winter off from practicing law and he worked at a ski resort. You know, because he really enjoyed being outdoors. Um, that's pretty Like, I, I can definitely understand why that's attractive.
0: So, going back to Legal Mind Society, kind of walk me through. Let's say I'm an attorney. That it, first of all, is it is it just for your area in Illinois, or is it kind of nationwide? No, right.
1: any any uh, attorney. It's all done virtually um, through. Um, so the one-on-one sessions are done through Me, which is a HIPAA compliant. Um, telecommunication platform. Uh, For group sessions, we would use Zoom um, just because the privacy expectations are a little different. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, anybody can reach out. Um, There's um, Up until now, we've had a a part of the website that you could schedule an appointment um, online. Um, I think we're going to change how that works. I feel like it's getting a little clunky. so i think i'm going to kind of be revamping that but you know even if regardless of how how you you do that you can any at any time you can contact us through the website you can email us at info at the legal mind society um and we'll definitely set something up okay
0: and so let's just say i'm yeah so i was gonna say that was going to be my next question and so if i'm a an attorney that's struggling i need if i come across your organization i want to start how what's the like what's step one is just go to the website and
1: Kind of yeah just reach out call us, email us um you know, let us know that you want to talk and and we'll make sure that that happens. and so you can kind of choose between a group setting
0: or a one-on-one
1: yeah and I I mean I'm turning into one- on-ones because just who ends up showing up um you know and and that's you know, Just kind of, you know, that's just kind of how it goes. And if people don't feel comfortable with a one-on-one session yet, I totally get it. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, the thing about peer-led support is it's all about where meeting people where they are and, you know, letting them take the recovery and everything at their pace. You know, empowerment is a really big part of recovery. So letting them take the lead.
0: I named the podcast Lawyer's End because it's like kind of a a little spin on on Buddhism and enlightenment. And I think that just like we talk about trauma-informed, trauma-informed, just being informed on like just the concept of operational organizational stressors, they're coming at you from both angles. They are unavoidable to some extent. So you have to equip yourself and take care of yourself to be able to mitigate and defend against them. And I think something like what you're doing where it's peer review, where you have somebody who's kind of become aware of it, can at the very least inform someone else about it and what that can do for that person. Just just knowing it going into the day.
1: Yeah, you know, and and, you know, we make it very clear that peer support is not therapy. Right. None of us are licensed therapists. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, we have a couple on our board who help help uh, advise us. But even though we're not that part of the recovery, we could definitely do some research for you, help connect you with resources in your area um, mm-hmm. that might be. Because I know from my own experience, sometimes the reason we're not seeing a therapist is it's just so hard to find one, or even get a you know get an appointment to see one. There's so many of them have huge waiting lists, you know. And so that's the other side of peer support that I see so much room for growth is. Um, the fact that there's huge demand for mental health resources and not enough of it out there.
2: Mm-hmm. Is there a fee?
1: Nope. It's all, it's all free. Um, so if you feel like supporting us with a donation, we greatly appreciate it, but, uh, it's that's certainly not required. Um, the services itself are completely free.
0: Where do you, where do you see it going? Like what, what would be, let's just say your five years is just to keep growing it and getting more volunteers and,
1: yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think I, being a peer recovery specialist myself, I think that's very near and dear to my heart. And I think that that needs to be an essential part of the organization. You know, what form that takes, you know, I think we'll always have one-on-ones, but I think that there's um, a lot of creative ways we can come at, at connecting with people. Um, five years though, I want to be working with um, bar associations to tackle this. You know, I want to be, you know, I think my dream goal, if I had one wish, would be to get the mental health question off all state bar applications because so many of them still have it. Um, you know, so educating bar associations about that and and you know trying to look for that that uh, systemic change.
0: Well, I think what you're doing is is really great. I, I and I, I think it's informing so many people. Um, and if you can just you know make one attorney informed on kind of the things that we're dealing with stress-wise then they can turn and tell one person et and cetera, etc cetera.
1: yeah so- and that's that's exactly what it is you know grassroots word of mouth that's really how this spreads and that's really what peer-to-peer support is about is hearing from somebody that you know that you trust that hey this helps me you know maybe you should go check it out and you know and like i said it's it's meeting people where they are so I totally understand if people are have their guard up when they first come in, you know, and, and, you know, I remember when I started therapy, it took me three or four sessions to to get past that. So, you know, totally building that trust and building that rapport is, is a huge part of the process.
0: It's kind of like if you're, if you're not ready to take the therapy step, it sounds like a good kind of starting point where you're just talking to a peer. And, um, you know, like you said, it's not therapy. It's, it's, it's just peer peer to peer talking. And so it's a kind of say, Hey, I'm not ready for therapy, but I do want to talk to somebody about it. It's a great
1: start. Yeah, for sure. And, and so many um, people who get support through peer peer support, that's exactly what it is. They don't have, you know, they haven't been consumers of the mental health field before this. They don't really know what to do. You know, there's a lot of different styles of therapy out there. They don't really know what you're looking at. So some, Sometimes it's just great to be able to talk to somebody and learn and and get that support. And. Um, yeah. Yeah,
2: you know, there's so much uh, research being done looking at the the sort of diminished mental health um, from year one to year three within the law school process and then they leave, they get barred and the the stress in the first few years. Are you seeing most of the calls from younger attorneys or, um, is there a broad spectrum of people that are reaching out to you?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think it's a broad spectrum. You know, I think I see more people talking about anxiety, you know, in February and July, when the bar exams are happening for obvious reasons, Mm -hmm. um, you know, the podcast that I do through for the Legal Mind Society, um, let's not kill all the lawyers. One of the guests we had um, on that was a clinical professor at University of Michigan who teaches a, about designing a fulfilling life in law, and she was saying that when she started doing this, she had a practicing attorneys reaching out to her and saying, "Hey, we never had this uh, when we were in law school. Can you help us? Can you, you know, do some coaching with us?" And that's, you know. So yeah, the stressors of being a young lawyer are definitely big, but I think it goes all the way through the profession. And I think that there's definitely room for it across the board. I seem to remember from like ethics class or something them saying, there's
0: three major points in your career where you're most susceptible to malpractice. And it's like the beginning when you don't know what you're doing the middle when you have like a family and kids and, and life kind of, takes over and then at the end when you might have diminished capacity i so i can assume that if people are willing to talk about it that you, you probably are looking at, at people all over the yeah. spectrum
1: yeah yeah and that's that's a great point because we talk so much about the stressors of law the stressors of um the profession but it's also all that other stuff the family stuff the um you know the trauma you know there's mm-hmm. a um so you know there's a lot of discussion about um adverse childhood experiences and how that influences the development of of depression and anxiety and all these mental health issues and you know there are some really interesting studies about how that plays into mental health issues um it's been looked at a little bit um in the legal field but i don't think it's been you know that well studied but just from the you know some of the sessions i've done i've definitely seen it
0: yeah i wonder you know i always wonder how many attorneys how many people go to law school to become attorneys to write some sort of subliminal, subconscious wrong of their own? And then when you get into it and you start interacting with, you know, like let's just say family law, you know, you start interacting with traumatic material and you combine that with your own adverse childhood experiences. That's just a, you know, uh, does that make sense?
2: Yeah. Well, they're, that's where their passion comes from. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, it's just really interesting. I just did a presentation for the FBI on compassion fatigue, and we were kind of talking about the myth of the uh, work-home balance, you know, the and that um, my area of expertise really is the secondary trauma of the family members when they love someone who's in such distress. And so do you know of any, services to help families or help family members of some of the attorneys that you're working with um or what do you do when it's not just a work-related issue but it's a home-related issue as well
1: yeah and that's a great question um you know unfortunately the legal mind society doesn't have quite the resources to handle that there are some great organizations that do um a lot of local chapters of the national alliance of mental illness have what they call family to family which is a program specifically for family support for teaching people about how to you know how to relate to someone who's struggling with mental illness because you know even even in my own life family friends people who care about me deeply they don't necessarily understand depression they don't understand anxiety you know my wife might look at me when i'm struggling to get out of bed and know that i'm hurting but not know how or not be able to relate to that because it's such a isolating thing
0: that's why that peer review is so crucial and it's why i like the concept so much because you could come home and explain that you got a deadline on a very serious motion to a spouse who's not an attorney that doesn't understand what that means like the same way my wife is a midwife and she comes home and talks about me about medicine that I don't under. I just have no way to understand what that really means and what the stress level of what that is. And so if you're like, I need that outlet, and that's exactly what you're providing. And I think that Yeah. That's-
1: yeah. So the, yeah, there's that aspect of it, the the um, professional stressors that other people might not understand. Um you know, and also You know, one of my professors in law school said sometimes it's the worst thing in in the world to be married to an attorney because we argue for a living. Um, You know, and I I I think there's a grain of truth in that Um, because we are, you know, law school really does kind of change how your your mind thinks, um, how you how you process information. Um, You know, and that's something that's hard for people to understand, especially. And then when you add in these other things like depression or anxiety or substance abuse um, so there are definitely resources that we can put toward um, you know refer family members to if they're struggling mm-hmm.
2: yeah the, the The other question is um, you know you listen to colleagues who are struggling every day <laughs> excuse me and so you are someone who you know has a high um, uh, likelihood of struggling with compassion fatigue uh, just by the work that you do, just like other uh, helping professionals. And I'm wondering what you do for self care. Like, how do you take care of yourself in this process?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. You know, um, so I'm um, a certified peer recovery specialist here in Illinois. Most states have a certification program for. Um, peer recovery now, uh, mm-hmm. and a big part of the training is self care, is being mindful of that compassion fatigue. And you know, even before I set up the Legal Mind Society, when I was doing um, peer support with the local NAMI affiliate, there were times that um, you know my coworkers would see it. I had a really hard session and just say, you know, go take a walk, go clear your head. Um, so it's taking that time for yourself and um, knowing that it's okay to take that time for yourself um, and whether and finding something that kind of re-engages you and recharges you, whether that's taking a walk, whether it's reading a book, whether it's um, you know just something that feel makes you feel good you know there's something I, I watched one time that was saying the the interesting thing about mental health compared to all the other medical professions is it really is about feeling like if you have cancer and you stand on your head, you might feel better, but you still have cancer.
0: Yeah, you broke up just a little bit there at the end of that. But I mean, okay. I, I point take, I mean, it's a good point. It, it,
2: it, um, you know, Carla jointson the person who coined the term compassion fatigue talks about the, the fact that people who have it are generally the last people to know that they have it that the people around them begin to notice these changes. And you talked a little bit about that communication between the attorney and their team. Mm-hmm. And um, you know that isn't only self-care, but that's team care mm-hmm. that um, would be really helpful in a firm to be able to develop that kind of process. Of yeah, support. to be able to,
0: because so much of like the, the, the burnout causes the organizational stress where somebody may be struggling and not Doing the amount of work that they were maybe people were used to them doing, and then then the in talking and the infighting starts about like oh they're just not pulling their weight they're you know, but instead of you look at it like maybe that person's struggling and I'm and like you said mindful of 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 the compassion fatigue and the burnout, you go to them and you you say hey are you okay
1: um, right absolutely and you know you talked about times that you're most likely to commit malpractice you know when you're burnt out you're not going to have the same bandwidth to provide that that level of advocacy and so knowing that taking time for self-care isn't isn't selfish you know period you know it's important for your overall health which should obviously be you know first priority but it's also really good for your professional health too
0: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When we're taught as lawyers to just, if you get caught in a, you know, in a pile of work, just dig your way out, work harder to get out of it. And like how wrong that can be, because if you're not taking time for yourself, then you don't have that capacity to do that work or at least not do it well.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I remember having lunch with the attorney, the one out, he was saying that as part of his benefits, he had two or three weeks vacation time and he had taken one day in my, you know the two or three years that he had worked there because and that that was they was because he would have had the flu and had a 102 degree temperature you know yeah. that shouldn't be the only time you take time off of work yeah yep you gotta you gotta reach here what do they say like
0: your cup can't overflow what's that saying you can't your cup can't overflow if it's empty or something like that and there's some saying like that but uh <laughs> i'm gonna i'm gonna find that quote yeah well uh-huh. I, I think you can't give to others out of your cup if it's empty or something like that. Maybe I made that up. I don't know.
1: I don't know. But it makes sense. You know, you, you can't give what you don't have. There you go. That's a
0: better way of putting it. <laughs> um, and then so one other question I had about the Legal Flow Society is, so it, you know, obviously we know what people do if they want to get help from it. What if you want to contribute and volunteer? should they get in touch with you and coordinate?
1: Yeah, yeah, you can contact us through the website. We have some people who have done that already. Um, you know, it's still as a growing organization. We're still developing it and working out the kinks. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we've had some attorneys who have come forward who already have trauma informed practices yeah. um, in their legal practice and want to help spread the word, want to help um, other attorneys, you know, and so we're definitely excited to have volunteers come join us. Um, you know, I think the biggest thing is also just spreading the word, having this conversation. Um, You know, sometimes it's really gratifying to just connect with somebody via social media or whatever, and have them, you know, share that, that, uh, that message on with their colleagues and with their um, classmates, if they're in law school. And, you know, that's why I'm so appreciative of the opportunity to be here talking to you about
0: it. Yeah. That's what we're all about is spread, spreading the word. Um, and I think about a day when the the legal profession doesn't say, "Oh, that's an interesting concept." They say, "Oh, yeah, you're you're not trauma informed," mm-hmm. because if when that day comes, think of how much better it's going to be for employees, for attorneys, for for clients, right. for judges, for everybody. I mean, so it, I I do think that the momentum is growing. More and more people are becoming aware of this concept, and and the conversation's not as wacky as it was. Even well, a couple I years know. ago, I I mean, when we first started doing this, we, we went to a, a trial lawyer association and got a booth like between, we were between like, you know, like fancy x-ray, uh, you know, yeah, yeah. and then like a accident reconstruction. and so there's like the two of us <laughs> and we were like, can we just talk to you about a really interesting concept about, about burnout and tr- trauma? you know secondary trauma and and we had some interesting conversations but Mm -hmm. it was kind of like let's just throw this let's throw this concept out and see if people kick us out of the event which they did. so i think in just like a short period of time it is definitely becoming more prevalent
1: it is and you know it's funny you talk about it, it becoming more prevalent and also what the old standard used to be because when i first came up with this idea i started kind of Bouncing it off the wall with some people, you know, and and having them network me to other other um, either practicing attorneys or or, or um, uh, like therapists that they knew. Yeah. And to, so I could you know talk about it, you know, kind of develop the idea more. And I the whole time I'm expecting somebody to tell me, well, you know, that's a ridiculous idea, or that's not really needed. But so many of them, especially the attorneys, were like yeah we we need this <laughs>
0: yeah. that's awesome. well i I appreciate you coming on and talking to us about it. I want as many people to know about your services as possible so that you know you can keep growing and, and spreading the good word. Um, I'll put your your website um, in the in the description so that way people can click on it to to go check it out. Um, and I hope that we stay in touch and and stay connected to to keep spreading the good word together. Absolutely. Well, Juan, it's been a pleasure. Um, and Dr. Barnes is my co host on the day. Sure. I appreciate you coming on. Oh, yes. Uh and coming in from Colorado. Um, but uh all right. So Juan, um, we will be in touch and I, I really appreciate you, you doing this.
1: Nice. Yeah, meeting. Nice meeting you and thank you again for having me.